0: Welcome to the sports psychologist. I have a really good one for you today. We're going to be talking sports washing, explaining what that is, and the psychology of hooliganism with journalist Joanne Reardon who also has a degree and has done research in criminology.
1: Sports washing kind of came into like major fashion there, kind of recently enough, um, when the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and you know the Abu Dhabi group and things like that were just kind of investing money in sports. So. I suppose the cynic in you would kind of argue that the only reason the likes of Nasser um, and Sheik and um, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, I suppose the only reason that they were investing in sport was to maybe clean up their image and to make their country look kind of fun and, and, and friendly and things like that. But like sports washing has been around, you know, for, for, for quite some time. You know, I mean, you know, you know, Russia used to do it obviously, for the 2018 World Cup. They tried to clean up their image for a little bit. Um, and you can go all the way back to, you know, even when, you know, the, the, Hitler had the Olympics in Germany, you know, during the, the time, I suppose it was to, to show the world, oh, look, Germany is thriving, just absolutely fine. Ignore all the other stuff that's kind of going on. But I suppose it's different now, I suppose, because we're a bit more connected. You know, I mean, we can talk to someone, you know, who's been to Saudi Arabia or been to Qatar, or, you know, been to Abu Dhabi and things like that. You know, whereas before you, you definitely wouldn't be able to, to ring up a friend in Germany in what, 1944. So, you know, it was a bit of a difference then, I suppose.
0: It sounds very simple, but are we that simple that we don't actually realise it's being done? I
1: suppose that's the thing, like, you know, twenty I suppose 2016, when the Euros were on, we kind of saw, I suppose, what people would say would be like a stereotypical kind of Russian thing, you know, they came out, they fought the Brits um, in, in Marseille, you know, it was a huge, a huge catastrophe, you know, down the south of France, you know, there was stuff being thrown everywhere, you know, Jamie Vardy's wife tweeted that she was trapped because police wouldn't let her out and there was a lot of kind of Russian hooligans coming for her and then, I suppose... You, you know, it's it's funny, like, if you if you look up kind of any interview with any of the hooligans that were there, they'd all say things like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Putin told us to do it. Yeah, 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 sure, the Minister of Sport told us to do it. And, you know, they actually have come out even recently enough saying, actually, it was a bit annoying because in 2018, they actually told us not to do it. And they told us to kind of, um, I suppose, police the streets a certain way, you know. So the hooligans were actually brought into kind of the policing side of it and made sure that nothing dramatic happened that would disrupt Russia's image which I found really weird you know like I mean these are people you know that you wouldn't think you know would, 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 would support kind of an ideology like that but yet you know they bought into the culture themselves you know they made Russia kind of a safe place and they made it fun and they made it exciting and you know um, someone was saying how that there was a girl and her only job was to stand outside stadiums and take fun selfies with people just to show how cool Russia was
0: like it's weird. Athletes are sometimes even dragged into it unbeknownst themselves or so they say anyway to help an image. Yeah, I suppose you can only look, you know, in your, your, your golf podcast, you
1: know, it actually reminded me, you know, when uh, I think it was Ian Poulter and, and they would said to him something like, oh, are you going to go to Saudi Arabia for the Open? Oh, no, sorry, it was Justin Rose. I'm wronging Ian Poulter here. Uh, it was Justin Rose. And Justin Rose said, well, I'm not a politician, you know, and the idea is that I'm an athlete. Like, what the hell can I do, you know, to, to, to stop human atrocities, you know, and things like that? Um, And I suppose it just showed, is it an ignorance? I'm not too sure. But I suppose if you if, you know, sports people are people at the end of the day. So if you do kind of pick up a group of people, no matter where you are in the world, and you say to them, you know, Saudi Arabia, what's your opinions, I guarantee you, a lot of them wouldn't really have a clue what's going on. So I suppose Justin Rose just kind of said it in a bit more of a public, uh, a public view. Is it Justin Rose's fault? He went to Saudi Arabia? Look, he probably ha- could have said no, but at the same time, he had sponsors behind him. He had the pressure of the tour behind him. He had like there was a lot of factors for Justin Rose, you know, to 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 consider in that moment in time. And for an 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 average athlete, you know, given the stereotype that is around athletes of them being jocks and not a bit, you know, being a bit, you know, they they think quite deeply. Let's put it like that. Would you really be sitting there thinking, oh, okay? Um, if i go to saudi arabia this is very obvious that i'm endorsing everything that they're doing and now i'm pro saudi arabia and hopefully by my appearance it'll show how great it is to the world and their tourism will go up and it's all thanks to me they're not thinking about that at all they're just talking about going to the next tournament and hitting the next ball like that's that's as far as it goes you know what i mean we're all we're all guilty i suppose and you know even though globalization has made us a bit more aware i suppose it's also helped us kind of turn a blind eye just because we're more willing to go to another culture and experience it and come back and say geez that was great now lads wasn't it you know i mean i have friends over in abu dhabi and dubai who are teaching you know and they're absolutely in love with the whole thing and yet you know i remember being in college and i had pas who refused to go there because they didn't want to be treated as second-class citizens as women so it's just it's just different to see how much you know one place could possibly evolve you know like i went to russia um it was four years ago now actually and um I remember you know we went over there with very limited I suppose uh we weren't that uh excited uh we didn't really know what would happen my brother uh Stephen he's uh, gay and he brought his partner Mark and they didn't sleep in the same rooms and obviously you know I have no limbs and they don't really like disabled people either over there but I remember we went over and it was like
0: i need to say to any russian who may happen to be listening please don't be offended by joanne's image of the russians
1: because i went over and i like it was like the world cup i had the best experience of my life you know like they just they put out so much effort and they put out you know everything to make us to make us feel welcome um but you know to this day i'll never forget that they gave us two Uh, let's call them bodyguards for want of a better term, just that if I wanted to go into a restaurant that had steps in it, they'd lift the chair just so I didn't have a negative view of Russia, you know, like, it was weird. Yeah, Yeah. but like, I suppose that's just kind of how they are. And, you know, when I went over there, you know, you're invited to kind of different summits on kind of how to encourage Russians to embrace people who are different and, and different things like that. And I suppose you kind of have to come at it from a different angle. You have to kind of tell them, you know, if you want to be the best country in the world or if you want to, do, you know what I mean? You kind of have to, You have to shine a positive light, I I suppose, on it more than anything else. And, um, you know, it was it was I mean, it was really interesting watching Russia today. You know, I definitely saw a few videos of Vladimir Putin killing bears with his hands, you know. And uh, after a week of being there, you know, I found myself nodding, going, geez, yeah, he did do that, didn't they? (laughs) You know, I don't know the videos are there if you want to look them up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is it. Apparently, the camera never lies. Now, when we talk about athletes, I do sometimes wonder if we put them onto a pedestal they never actually chose Just because they happen to be good at a certain sport or is it something that they just have to take with the privilege?
1: That is, I suppose, that is super interesting and then you can kind of, you know, add another dimension to it and say, you know, are we actually worse even with like kind of female athletes? You know, do we expect actually a lot more out of them? You know, because the standards like are so low, like if Katie Taylor tomorrow decided she was cashing in on her you know, purse with Eddie Hearn and decided to fight under Anthony Joshua, you know, in Saudi Arabia, would we be a little bit more harsh on her? Like, should she know better? You know, different things like that. Um, But I suppose at the end of the day, like, athletes are people, you know, and I suppose one of the, the most common phrases used is, politics and sport don't mix. And I suppose at the end of the day, what that actually means is, it's it's not politics and sport don't mix, it's your politics and sports don't mix. You know, you watch the NFL, you know, you watch the Super Bowl, it's flyovers, it's the American flag. It's, you know, up the USA. It's it's as it's it's as political as as you could find it. But just because that's their politics and that's how they identify those who are watching NFL, they don't see it as a political thing, you know. So I think it just it just kind of comes down to really, I suppose, what are your political interests? You know, last night, you know, a friend of mine, we were we were joking. We said, you know, coronavirus activity, you know, which English player is Tory or Labour? I don't even know why we started it, um, but it actually turned into a full-on row and it actually turned out that we were actually kind of, I suppose, stereotyping them a little bit, you know, to a certain degree.
0: You know, sometimes I think we place our opinions and our ideals onto the players and the athletes when really we should be talking to the administrators. You mentioned the NFL, look at Colin Kaepernick and the rage that engulfed him, when really the rage should probably have been directed at those who made him and people like him feel worse than second class.
1: You could, you know, I'm not defending anyone in the NFL, but you could also say, look at what the NFL owners and administrators and fans are compromised of. You know, they're white Americans who don't see the problem, you know, of black people. Sure, it's a lot of black players that are playing, don't get me wrong. But even if you look at, you know, and this is even in treacherous water, if you look at those who are in, let's call it, uh, the, the main spots in an NFL team, so your quarterback and your head coach and your uh, owner and your uh, the manager kind of in between, they're all, the vast majority of them are white. Colin Kaepernick, Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson, they're the only three, four, I could think off the top of my head, you know, who are, who are not white. You know, then you have like Tom Brady, Jimmy Garoppolo, Ben Roethlisberger, you know you've all of those you know head coaches i could be wrong but i think pits no it's definitely not just pittsburgh but pittsburgh are definitely the only ones who have had a black coach in for more than 10 years um and that's you know that comes down to then if you even want to go further back that's because dan rooney once upon a time sat down and he said geez it's not fair that all these minorities aren't getting a chance should we create a rule where we have to at least interview one to see if they can provide anything good and therefore you have the Rooney rule that's in existence today. But at the end of the day, that was Dan Rooney looking at himself, a white, you know, really rich American saying, I'm very privileged in my position. How can I use my privilege to help those who are not as privileged, you know? Is is I suppose isn't that the problem with the 1% in general? You know, we even see now there's a massive, you know, world pandemic going on and the 1% aren't the ones who are at the forefront. And I think now maybe that attitude might be shifting a little bit. You know, someone was kind of joking, you know, it's all fun and games being a socialist until the pandemic happens, then you really have to be a socialist, you know. Um, and it is maybe true to a certain degree. You know, we're looking at the like likes of Jeff Bezos and, um, you know, even those who kind of went to Cheltenham to a certain degree, they were all kind of demonized and villainized a little bit just because they put the whole country at risk just for, to splash a bit of cash, you know what I mean? So I think maybe the attitudes might change. Obviously, I don't know kind of post you know, the, the pandemic or whatever. But I think slowly but surely people are becoming less uh, encouraged by those who are kind of white, upper class, wealthy um, and who have really all the power. A lot of it is kind of, it's kind of shifting, I suppose, at the moment to
0: those who are on the front line, you know. We know as well, of course, that big brands, they like to latch on to an athlete, to clean or even just to positive up their image. Should we just accept that and maybe just understand the transaction?
1: I can remember and uh, I can remember when t- everything came out about Tiger Woods. And I remember Nike were the only sponsor not to drop them. So everyone else that dropped them, you know, he was obviously a bit of a shambles and, and things like that. He made the apology, you know, didn't really go down well. Um, and Nike, you know, we were kind of joking, like Nike's, Nike's logo is just do it, you know. And whether just do it means going against the grain, supporting someone um, that everyone else is kind of turned against or is just do it. You're putting yourself out there on a social cause. Now, the cynic will obviously say, there's no way in hell nike are putting themselves out there for a social cause they're putting themselves out there for a quick book you know i mean you know phil knight isn't he's not going to cry if someone wants to burn their nike shoes you know because you know tiger woods is still there or they're still sponsoring colin kaepernick or whatever you know phil knight is actually buzzed because his shoes are being branded across all brands of media albeit in a bit of a negative light um but at the same time you're still talking about nike you know i mean that's that's the point of the whole thing. Like it, it's it, it's kind of class advertising, you know. Um, but you know, I suppose as you said, brands they're as guilty of it as as kind of the next, and I suppose they're they're the ones who maybe get away with it, you know, a bit more just because you know we're all guilty of going out buying our Nikes, our Adidas's, you know, our JD's, you know, or or, or whatever. I suppose that's something that you can't you can't actually help. I mean, t- uh,
0: you touched on it earlier. Do we hold people in minorities? And even women to a higher account, or do we expect higher standards of them? What do you think?
1: If you even take, kind of, the last women's World Cup as an example, um, it was, it was, it was, it was put recently. There was a game on, I think it was USA were playing like a friendly before the World Cup, and the referee gave like a foul, and one of the players, I don't know, I'm not going to curse on this podcast. I don't want you to get knocked off like Chinese you know, top charts, because I know they're, they're really annoying when you curse <laughs> on a podcast. But she said something to the ref, and apparently on Fox, there was a high level of um, complaints that she swore live on air. Now, Olivier Giroud was playing uh, for Chelsea maybe a few hours before that, and he swore at a referee, and it became a gif, and it's now definitely used to, to react to a lot of annoying things in WhatsApp group chats. So what's the difference, you know, between there? Like, is it just because we have this vision of a woman not supposed to be swearing, be a bit ladylike, you know, and be a bit timid, you know, and things like that. Whereas Olivier Giroud, he portrayed his masculinity. It was strong. Yeah, yeah, you know, screw the referee, you know, different things like that. Whereas with women, it was a bit more, oh, why is she swearing? Geez, that's not very ladylike, is it? Jeez, she could have gone about that a better way. Like, it, it blew my mind when I heard, you know, the reports that people were actually complaining. Like, it was, it was hilarious just, just to see the difference. And that's only with swearing, you know. You take the likes of Megan Rapinoe, you know, and she's putting herself out there on a limb. Whether you like her or not is another story um, to say that she wants equal pay, you know, for equal play. And, you know, kudos to her. But I guarantee you there's a lot on the US women's soccer team, a lot of the younger players who don't really want to speak out because they're not really too sure in case they put their foot wrong because they're more judged, you know, than their male counterparts. And then I suppose you could go on the, the, the flip side. You know, was it Steph Houghton came out recently, the English defender saying, yeah, I don't actually like watching women's games. I find them a bit boring, but I enjoy playing them. And everyone lost the plot with poor Steph Houghton. Like Steph Houghton just doesn't like watching football games in general. Like it just so happened that the line she used was because the question was, do you watch women's games? And she said, no, I don't watch women's games. In fact, I find football quite boring. That was all she said. And yet everyone picked up on the fact that Steph Houghton found women's football more boring, despite being a player. Like a lot of athletes don't watch games. You know, I think that's, that's potentially a given, you know.
0: So to bring it all back, is sports watching done well? really just an elaborate form of successful advertising.
1: When Anthony Joshua fought, was it Andy Ruiz? I can't even remember who he fought in Saudi Arabia or whoever it was. And there was a packed out stadium. Like that's, that's good. You know, like that's good for ratings. You know, if you see a game in Iran and you see a bunch of women in the crowd, like that's good advertising. Wow. Women are welcome in Iran. I suppose what you don't know is that behind the scenes, they they selectively chose the women to, 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 to go to the games in Iran. Um. So I suppose it is technically good advertising, but just like any good advertising, you have to do it right and you have to strike the right tone. And I suppose that just
0: depends on the market that you're trying to capitalize on. Okay, let's move on the bus. What is hooliganism in sport? Like, where does it even come from? Hooliganism is just a subculture. Like,
1: that's basically it. It's just a group of fans that we don't really like that much because they're causing a lot of problems. Um, and the only reason they don't like us is because they think we're not causing enough problems. That's basically it. I suppose what hooliganism is to a certain degree is it's people who will be preying on other people who don't feel like they have a lot to do in life. You know, be it people who maybe uh, move to a different country and can't get a a break, be it people who have grown up in a certain working class background um, and they also can't get a break. So they're now getting disillusioned with how the world works. Um, So that's, I suppose, technically how you could become a hooligan. I suppose we all love football, you know, we all love going to matches and we all love going to games. Um, like what happens tomorrow morning if, if, if you were stopped, you know, from going to a game, you know, if you couldn't afford the ticket and someone said to you, listen, I have a way for you to get in, but you're just going to have to beat the crap out of that fellow over there. If you were pretty upset and pretty annoyed, you know, rational choice theory here, you're, you're probably going to do whatever you can in order to get into the game. I'm not condoning it and I'm not saying it's the, it's the right thing to do. But I think a lot of it is, is down to social control, subcultures and just the, the need to have an identity and to belong to something no matter what it is. In a certain scenario where you weren't allowed into a shop because you looked a certain way, if you weren't allowed into a shopping center because you looked a certain way, if you couldn't get a job because you had a certain background, all of that kind of disillusionment, you know, it filters in. And you are, I suppose, in a way, as my brother would say, you are beaten down to the point where you would believe anything that anyone tells you, like your brain is so far like you're so angry at the world and how the world is treating you if someone said to you here I have five minutes for you to actually get rid of that anger plus you might be able to see a football match if you do it well I mean if you're really 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 desperado you might do it now fortunately myself or yourself have never got to a stage where we are completely desperado and want to forget all the troublesome things that are going on in our lives you know that's that's the only difference
0: Every orchestra has a conductor, I suppose. So who's in charge of a band of hooligans? Who's their conductor?
1: Hooligans are bizarrely organized. And I I, I mean this in the nicest way. Like they, a lot of hooligans have like a system and a hierarchy, if that makes sense. Like they are, a lot of them, sometimes they are like a mini society, like within themselves, you know, you have, so you obviously have the orchestrator who's at the top. Chances are you know this fella might have been a bit of trouble a long time ago chances are he might even be into football chances are he just likes beating up other people um and he's found a way to manipulate other people to get on board with beating up other people as well so he's at the top of the group and he's the one who's organizing the whole thing you're right chances are it's a male um it's actually funny a lot of the times in sweden a lot of the times the lookouts if if that makes sense so the people who are saying oh malmo's coming over the road a lot of times they're actually women or girlfriends of, 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 the, of the person who's in charge, uh, which is different, you know, to a lot of how other hooligans would organize themselves. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a full on hierarchy. He's on top. He's a bit of a troublemaker. Probably, you know, has maybe it's idealizing a bit too much, but he probably has other like maybe addiction problems or anything like that. Um, but either way, it's the troublemaker who's at the top. But with all troublemakers, you have to have a good brain and you have to be a good manipulator to be at the top.
0: Are the leaders also just smart enough to let other people do their dirty work for them, Joanne?
1: Pablo Escobar, for example, you know, the big drug lord. I mean, they could be right when they say Pablo Escobar actually didn't physically kill a lot of people. But you you bet your bottom dollar Pablo Escobar told a lot of people to kill a lot of other people. You know what I mean? Like, he just didn't want to get his hands dirty. And you find that with a lot of people who are at the top. They do not want to get their hands dirty because chances are, if you delve a little bit deeper into their past, like, they're, they're waist high up, up in the nonsense that they've been doing, you know, back in the day. It's just only now they found a way to get themselves, not out of it, but they found found a way to, to manipulate people in order to do it. You know, if you think of, say, if you think of the, the, the Russian hooligans, you know, who came, who came to town um, and when they fought the, the English hooligans or whatever. So the Russian hooligans didn't like the fact that the English hooligans were saying that they were the best hooligans in Europe. They were like, no, screw that. So they had an image, like, that was their reasoning. So they had an image, so they decided (laughs) we want to fix Russia's image of being the tough guy. So they decided to march on down. Then you had the English problem, which was that um, Brit pride, I suppose, plays into it. I lived in New York for a year. I've seen a lot of it. Um, And the Brit pride wasn't, I suppose, nice enough to say to the Russians, you know what, beat us up you know, see, you know we'll, we'll, we'll just cry to the BBC, you know, or whatever, which is what the Russians say they did. Um, you know, they just, they, they fought back because that's not what British people do. They, they have to fight back. You know, it's not Flanders Field, you know, but by God, we'll treat it like Flanders Field, you know what I mean? Um, and that's, I suppose, where you had the, the massive issue I suppose that came today. But if you look at a lot of the groups that were fighting, Maria, on behalf of Russia, these were all people that were scouted and were recruited. Chances are they were an MMA fighter. Chances are they were bit down in the dumps. They didn't have a job. Um, and they were easy prey for people to kind of uh, to pick upon and say, hey, you want to give Russia a good name? You want to meet some you know, fancy politicians? You know, if now's your chance, go over to France and, and sort that out.
0: This might be really naive of me, but how do international gangs of hooligans manage to pre-plan riots and fights in advance? You know, it kind of reminds me of being in school and knowing there was going to be a scrap at lunchtime in the playground. Um, it's just something I've always wondered about
1: like there was probably things online about where the british fans would be you know they had like their fan centers and then they had like the streets often that they would be drinking in so i suppose they were very organized kind of that way and then i suppose from a purely russian hooligan point of view they were also playing england so it, it was a completely easy opportunity like i remember watching that game i think it was on itv and i just remember seeing a bizarre surge in the crowd and i was like what the hell is going on there and all of a sudden i just saw batons and things flying and i was like oh they're just just having a a full-on scrap there in the crowd. That's a bit bizarre. You know, I haven't seen that probably since those infamous videos of that Ireland game, you know, when England came to town, you know. like
0: Is it a national psyche thing? Not that I'm going to sit here and pat the Irish on the back, because we've been known to start our own scraps at times at games locally. But generally, when other fans from other countries try to start something or want to fight, countries like Ireland tend to say, I know you're grand and turn around and do the Poznan.
1: Yeah, France 98. They interviewed a load of English supporters and they interviewed a load of Scottish supporters because they were all mixing in the same area, but they were very clear that it was Scottish and English, if that makes sense. And the English fans were like, oh, it was the Algerians and the Turks who turned on us. You know, how dare they? We had to fight back, of course. And then the Scottish fellow was like, well, do you know what? That's a peak English attitude. Us Scots wouldn't do that. And someone said, are the Turks and the Algerians annoying you? And the Scottish said, no. In fact, every time we tell them we're Scottish, not English, they change their attitude completely. Um, so I don't I like you're right from a purely Irish point of view and I think that worked even well for us you know while the English were fighting the Irish were changing the the wheel for a nun you know somewhere up in Nice you know and all of a sudden geez that's a great good news story and it's not really a pat on the back because like I mean I go to a lot of League of Ireland games my brother like you know they, they definitely won't like saying it in the League of Ireland but there is a lot of potential troublemakers that was, could cause damage you know what I mean to to let's call it the image of the league.
0: So we can have our local issues and I think that's probably a worldwide thing where local spites might spill out over into the terraces, be it League of Ireland, Rangers, v Celtic and Glasgow, for example, on and on and on. But the hooligan, as we know it, you're saying he or she, usually he, it's a different animal.
1: They'll say, no, we're not a hooligan, we're just organised violence. They don't like it. Like a hooligan to them is sloppy, uh, you know, throwing stuff at a team, you know, uh, you know, being anti-Europe or you know different things like that like that that to them is a hooligan you know which always kind of made me laugh you know they these people are are there to create organized violence so if you throw the hooligan thing at them they'll freak out even more and chances are they'll actually react even even worse than trying to fight someone else to to prove to you you're not a hooligan um you know I'm, I'm i'm laughing here because you know i have i used to have written in like my old criminology notes you know that uh deviant values are actually quite simple the urge to party hard drink too much swear punch idiots you work with and sleep with your brother's wife etc like they're all deviant values that a hooligan would not ever say that a hooligan would do because this is organized violence this is co- something completely different this is a culture this is a this is something that they that they've attached themselves to. And this is something that they're obsessed with. And this is something that they'll fight for and, and an image they want to keep forever. They're not sloppy and that they won't let it kind of go. Like, you know, the Swedish, the Swedish hooligans, even though they don't want to be called hooligans, the Swedish hooligans, um, they'd always say that when the firms come together. So they're the, the, the groups. So say the, the Malmo firm versus the Stockholm firm, as an example. Um, the stockholm firm would always say well the malmo firm are sloppy they'll fight anyone they'll beat up anyone the stockholm firm they like only fighting with other firms you know so that's it like they can see they can see in themselves that like they they like <laughs> i think one of them actually said that he had a precedent to set to younger members that he didn't want them going around fighting everyone you know he only wanted them to fight certain people from certain teams <laughs> you know um it was how I would go around interviewing them I suppose you have to get them on your side it's a lot of trust you know if you ever read any of the stuff that's done on the Russian hooligans it's a lot of weird trips to the woods to watch a load of fights um it's a lot of uh uh, having a knife on you just in case someone reacts negatively towards you so you'd have to kind of I suppose win them over in a trust a trusting scenario
0: when I was researching this I kind of wondered why a lot of these people don't maybe, you know, channel their rage or anger into a more direct and healthier way and join a local boxing or MMA club or martial arts. But you kind of surprised me then when you said that oftentimes they are, and more often than not, they use it to either hone their hooliganism skills or are kicked out. They have
1: disadvantaged backgrounds. You know, at the end of the day, that's the truth. They, they're not in a situation where they could apply for a job in a pharmaceutical company and get, you know, thirty forty thousand 40,000 a year. You know what I mean? They're not in that position. Um... A lot of them wouldn't have kind of beyond primary education. You know, they they would probably drop out around secondary school time. Um, And a lot of them would just feel that they have no hope. So I suppose the idea that when you're interviewing them, you have to understand that you have to you have to rationalize in your head, despite the fact you may never, ever have that situation. How would I react if I was in that situation more than anything else? Um, And I suppose at the end of the day, even though it's hard to do, you would just have to rationalize all the choices that they've made so far. Like, I couldn't imagine tomorrow morning me beating the head off someone just because I didn't get my loaf of bread in the morning. But for these people, this is the difference between life and death. They're in the club to be better in life, but unfortunately, they're dragged back into a hooligan culture. Um, it's like one of those things. Once, you, once you're once you in it, kind of once, it's, it is super hard to, to, to get out of to a certain degree. Um, but I suppose a lot of the time, you have to understand these people are, like... I'm not saying they're failures, but they have failed in pretty much every other aspect in life. Like, this is their only outlet that they find themselves like succeeding in and i suppose you're right go to a boxing club and get it out that way but if you're thrown out of the boxing club because you know one of the boxing coaches found out that you were fighting off the street you failed at that as well like jesus like what else is left for you
0: do these people choose to be hooligans or do they even realize that's where they're heading
1: they want to belong to something more than more than anything um yeah like I like that that it's basic psychology we all do and i suppose unfortunately like what they're belonging to is is this this thing that we don't really i suppose like looking at you know you could go maybe a little bit deeper and say the reason why it's higher in males compared to women um is because of the idea of you know the construction of masculinity you know and things like that you know like you know to to be a better man you, you you know you have to be strong you know suppress all your feelings you know do do the everyday things that we would expect you know a man to do so i suppose it is like i'm not saying oh boo hoo, the poor man but like at the same time i suppose they have a lot of other stuff you know that they that they would kind of be rallying rallying against as well and kind of suppressing you know that goes out then into beating the crap out of someone just because you're so fed up with it if you just give them some bit of stability and if you give them something i suppose to like kind of tiny goals to i suppose achieve by you know um you'd you'd you definitely kind of help out. But, you know, my brother, Dennis, he lives in Sweden. And uh, he actually said that there's a few hooligans, definitely in Malmo, that actually have big degrees and jobs and businesses, you know. So, you know, he was saying, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's just, it's just to get a thrill. Like if you read any of the stuff about, you know, when they go in for a fight, um, a lot of it is a thrill. A lot of it is like an addiction, you know, more than anything, if that makes sense. So that addiction and that high and that adrenaline rush, they're just trying to repeat it. And I suppose the only way that you can repeat it is by doing the same thing. But then eventually that thing wears off. So what have you what have you got to do again? You know what I mean? So it is just a vicious cycle, I suppose. You know, what you what you'd have to do is get them out of that stage of addiction kind of maria. Um, you would have to get them into something that makes them feel more meaningful and, you know, give them a bit of supportership, I suppose, um, more than anything. Um and you'd have to show them. You'd have to tap into all the things that the hooligans are doing, but just lessen the violence aspect of it more than anything else. So you'd have to tap into someone wanting to belong to a culture or something. You'd have to tap into giving someone uh, reasonable goals to achieve uh, or tangible goals in order to to go a bit further in their life. Um, and you'd have to, you know, the problem with these people is that they're impatient. They want to see results now. If I if I punch you in the face right now, I'm not going to punch you in the face, but I can see that you're hurt. You know what I mean? Whereas if you tell me in four years, you'll be a doctor, like, come on, I can get better <laughs> satisfaction punching you.
0: You know what I mean? <laughs> Finally, to bring it back to a smarting admin context, I know you think that administrators have done a lot of work to keep it out of the grounds, but there's still a lot more to be done.
1: It's very rare now, I suppose, in Ireland and in England. I've been to some of the, the the lower leagues you know where you're kind of standing there going oh my god someone is actually going to die here because the aggression is so high um but they've done well enough to kind of get it out of the stadium so i suppose as far as sporting organization from a purely legal point of view they'll say you know what lads we've actually done enough because we got it out of the stadium but when you get it out of the stadium the problem is that it's going down little alleys it's going into pubs it's going into so many different places that you can't potentially regulate i think it's a it's it's a full-on it's a it's a cooperation, I suppose, that needs to be found between the sporting organizations, between the between the guards, between security, you know, different things like that. And also between people who are working in these working class environments um, in order to, to provide a better, I suppose, life, you know, for those who are who are involved. It's definitely not 100 percent on the sporting organizations, um, but it's, it's on all of us. It's on it's on everyone to try and take someone out of that, that, that um, vicious cycle of violence.